Scott's, Scott's not in here, so I was able to do that. Uh, but I'm, ki- I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Scott, was, he, was, he did a fantastic job of leading us and getting us back home. Most of us ended up sick. I'll blame that on Scott as well. But he got us home safe and sound. It was a great experience. Reynosa was a great um, place to visit, to, to go, and to serve. Um, because we are, it's so humbling to be reminded that the kingdom is so much bigger. The church is so much larger than this building. God is building his kingdom throughout his church, not just here in Indiana, not just in Kentucky, but throughout the country, throughout Mexico, throughout Brazil, Spain, Egypt, throughout the world. And it cannot be stopped. He's handed us the responsibility of building his kingdom. I've referenced this saying before, but the church, Big C Church, is God's plan A. We are his plan A for building this kingdom, and there is no plan B. And so with that, we're going to continue on our series in Acts. And just a real quick recap. We're up to Acts chapter 8 at this point. Real quick recap. Jesus is alive. Jesus returns to the Father. He gives us the Spirit. Peter begins talking about Jesus in Jerusalem. The church begins to grow. The church is supporting each other, sharing what each person has with everyone else. A couple people lie about what they have. They're struck dead. Things get serious. These Jesus followers begin to be thrown into prison. They begin to be beaten and killed. And last week, Jerry taught us that the disciples realize that they can't do this on their own, and they appoint seven to help them out. One is a guy named Stephen, and one is a guy named Philip. Stephen doesn't make it too far. We see in chapter 7, which we're going to skip chapter 7, but we see in chapter 7 that Stephen tells people about Jesus, and people don't like what he has to say about Jesus, and so they kill Stephen. They stone him to death. The text in chapter 7 says that they take out their outer robes so that they can get a better throw at Stephen, and they hand those robes over to a guy named Saul. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. Acts chapter 8, 1 through 25. If you have your Bible, you can grab that, or it'll be on the screen as well. Verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went from place to place, proclaiming the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds with one accord listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that they did for unclean spirits, crying with loud shrieks, came out of many who were possessed. And many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So there was great joy in that city. Now a certain man named Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he was someone great. All of them, from the least to the greatest, listened to him eagerly, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they listened eagerly to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. After being baptized, he stayed constantly with Philip and was amazed when he saw the signs and great miracles that took place. 
Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. The two went down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not come upon any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain God's gift with money. You have no part or share in this, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the chains of wickedness. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may happen to me. Now after Peter and John had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, proclaiming the good news to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, I like to think that I'm handy. I like to think that when something's broke, I might have the opportunity to fix it, that I might have the know-how to fix it. My grandfather used to build houses. My dad can build most anything out of wood. I have furniture in my house that my dad and I have built together. I have a 20-year-old Jeep that has 293,000 miles on it, and I work on it, and I work on it so that it might get to 300,000. But no matter how handy I think that I am, there are things that I know I just can't do. There are things that I'm not experienced enough at, that I don't have the right tools for. I don't have the know-how to do it. And I remember years ago, um, I ran into one of those instances where my know-how ran a little bit short. I was doing a little plumbing project in my house, which, to be honest, plumbing is not my wheelhouse, so I shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. But I attempted it, and things went wrong. And so I called my friend, who I knew had the know-how, and he came over with his tools and began to make things right. And as he began to work, my daughter, Emma, who was about four years old at the time, went and got her plastic toolbox. And she went to my friend and got out her plastic tools and pretended to help him fix things. And I loved that moment because my friend welcomed Emma into the project. He would ask Emma to go and get a certain tool. He'd say, go get the tool that looks like this. And she'd run to his toolbox and she would get what she thought was the right tool and bring it. It might not have been the right tool. But he invited her into the process. She didn't have the right tools. She didn't have the know-how. She didn't have the ability But he did, and he invited her into the process. He invited her and her plastic tools into fixing, into restoring, into building. And he was inviting her into something bigger, something where her plastic tools couldn't take her. And so this morning, we're going to look at this larger story that we are a part of. We're looking at the book of Acts, and we're looking at the early church, and that church is a part of who we are. It's a part of our DNA. And so we're going to look at that larger story. We all have a story. Whether you like to think that you do or not, you do. We all have a story. And our story reminds us of where we've been. Our story gives us insight into who we are. And our story can actually inspire us about where we're going. 
Now, what's important this morning is that when we begin to connect our stories, when I share my story with RJ's story, we begin to build a community. A community is formed on these shared stories. And when a community is formed, the community all of a sudden begins to build its own story, begins to write new chapters in this larger story. In ZPC, Zionsville Presbyterian Church here at the corner of 116th and Michigan in Indiana, we are connected to other communities, to other churches. We're partnered with the global and historical church around the world, and that's who we are, and that's what we're looking at in Acts. And I think there's something significant about reading Acts, something significant about studying and emulating this church in the book of Acts, because we have a deep, deep connection with it. When we read through the book of Acts, we realize that this isn't just any old story. It's our story. And so, this morning, we might ask ourselves, where do we fit in that story? Where does ZPC fit in this larger church story? As we think about the text this morning that we read, as we think about our story, I think sometimes we find things that are happening in the beginning of the church that are a part of our DNA, like I said. And if we take some time, we step back, and we consider what's going on in Acts, it might give us some insight as a church as to where we've come from, who we are, and maybe even where we're going. And so there are three things that I'm going to look at this morning from the text. Um, There's lots of things I think we could pull from the text, but there's three things I want to look at. The church is persecuted, the church is scattered, and the church is sent. So the church is persecuted. We'll start there. We didn't go through chapter 7 because if we hit every chapter of Acts, we'd be doing this for the next year to come, right? So we skipped over chapter 7, but in chapter 7, I mentioned a bit ago, we come across this guy named Stephen, one of the seven. And Stephen is persecuted. He's killed for what he believes. And this is the beginning of the church. And as we read Scripture, as we read through the rest of Acts, we're going to see that this is a continual theme. The church is constantly persecuted. And in addition to that, as we look beyond Scripture, we look at church history, we find that Christianity is, Christ followers are continually persecuted. In fact, there's a picture here. This is a picture called Nero's Torches. Nero's Torches. Nero was emperor of Rome in the late first century. And Nero did not like Christians all that much. Nero would take Christians, he would bind them to stakes, and he would let those stakes on fire. And those fires would light his evening dinner parties. This is a part of our story. This was a fate of our people at one time. This was the fate of the Christian church. And we see these persecutions over and over and over again throughout church history. And the interesting thing about persecution is that it's not just a historical matter. It's very present. It's a reality for us today. Maybe not for us here in the church in America, but throughout the world for sure. I remember several years ago seeing this picture. 21 Christians, 21 Egyptian Christians who were asked to denounce their faith and they wouldn't do it. And so they were killed. According to stats put out by the World Evangelical Alliance in Iraq, which if we think about that, Iraq, the land of Eden, the land of Jonah, the land of Daniel, 
In Iraq over the last 20 years, those who identify themselves as Christ followers have shrunk from about 1.5 million to about 300,000 for fear of persecution. In Syria, an estimated 1% of Syrian refugees claim Christianity because they, quote, fear negative repercussions from Sunni refugees. According to the New York Times in 2013, nearly 450,000 Syrian Christians had left the country due to religious persecution. In Pakistan, Christians face a constant threat of mob violence because there's these things called blasphemy laws, and the Christians break those by what they believe, and they can face the death sentence. In North Korea, if you openly profess yourself as a Christ follower, it can land you in hard labor camps for life. It's easy for us to hear these stats and feel very far removed from them, right? We're here in the States. We don't have these things so much. They're not as prevalent. But spoiler alert, at the beginning of our text today, we meet a guy named Saul. And Saul becomes a guy named Paul. And Paul begins to write letters to these churches that are persecuted. And in one of his letters to the church in Corinth, Paul says, If one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. So even though we might feel far removed from what's going on in other parts of the world, Paul reminds us that if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. Persecution in the church is not just historical, it's present, and it's a reality. And I would say persecution is not just universal, it's also very personal. And maybe this is where we relate more to persecution than maybe what I just talked about. Because maybe you've been passed up for a promotion at work because of what you believe. Maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend breaks up with you because you have this crazy notion that somehow your spirituality is tied to and informs your relationships. Maybe you're misunderstood or misrepresented or ridiculed. These are things that happen to us. And ultimately, I think persecution is trying to do one thing, and that's isolate us. Persecution wants us to believe that we are all alone. It wants us to believe that somehow what we are and what we're about doesn't matter. And if persecution has its way, it will divide and conquer and destroy. Remember that we're a part of this story, this larger, greater story. And in this story, we are a persecuted church. And we are a church, because of, we know this because of Acts, we are a church that is familiar with persecution. And because we're familiar with it, we know how to talk about it. Because we, talk, we are able to talk about it, we know how to experience it and weather it well. We've been talking about it for 2,000 years. And I don't know about you, but I like to think that I could go to hell and back if I know that there's someone who knows me, someone who knows my story, who's with me, who loves me, understands me, and walks with me. And maybe even for us this morning, it's good to be reminded that if you've been persecuted or if you've been harmed or if you feel isolated, you're not alone. We have a long history of that. And you have a church that you can lean on. If you're here today and someone asks you how you're doing and you say, I'm fine, which by the way, that wasn't an allowable answer as a child for me. Fine was not okay. I wasn't allowed to give that answer to my parents. But if this morning you say, I'm fine, and you're not, don't leave this place without sharing with someone what's really going on, where you're really at. It's okay to say, I'm isolated. It's okay to say, I am hurt. It's okay to say, I can't go on, because those words are okay in this church. We're a persecuted church, but when we walk through these doors, we're to remember that we're not alone. We're building a community, 
a community that's formed on our shared stories and our shared hurts and our shared joys. We're a church built on community, built on our stories, built on God's story, and our response is to build his kingdom here on earth. And that's what this church, this church is doing in Acts. The church is a persecuted church. The church is a scattered church. In our text this morning, we see Luke use the word scattered multiple times. And there is, there's a lot going on. It says the apostles are in Jerusalem, and persecution breaks out, and then they begin to scatter. They begin to go away from Jerusalem. There's movement in being scattered. People are driven from their homes. And throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see that the scattering continues. It's a reoccurring theme for the early church. The early church scattered so much, so much so, that by the end of the second century, the early church father this, guy, this guy's got a good name. Tertullian, the early church father, said this in the year 107, 197 A.D. He said, We are but of yesterday, and yet we have filled all the places that belong to you. All your cities, islands, forts, towns, exchanges, the military camps themselves, tribes, town councils, the palace, the senate, the marketplace. We have left you nothing but your temples. In 150 short years, Christianity had spread to pretty much all the known world. It had infiltrated and permeated all these little nooks and crannies. And so how is it that in 150 short years that happened? Because the church was scattered. How is it that it happened? I think it's interesting. It wasn't because there was some rock star preacher. It wasn't because there was some master plan that the church had come up with that they followed. It was basically regular people like you and me under the radar being forced out of your homes taking your stories with you and sharing those stories with wherever you find yourself scattered. Tertullian also said this about persecution and being scattered. He said, We multiply whenever we are cut down by you. The blood of the Christian is the seed of the church. The blood of the Christian is the seed of the church. I find that fascinating because when people see that something is worth dying for, they realize that it's something worth living for. When people see that something's worth dying for, they realize that it's something worth living for. There is something so compelling about the resurrected Jesus that in the face of death, they would choose death over denying their Savior. And that's a part of our story. As the church was scattered, each person brought their own story with them. Each person brought their Christ story with them. I think that's important. To know that the early church, all they had was their story, and they took that with them. They weren't Bible thumpers, because they physically didn't have Bibles then to thump people with, right? They took their story. That's what they took with them. They didn't have a 30-day devotional or a track on the path of salvation. They took their story with them, their Christ story. They had their story and the story of a Christ that is alive and well, and that is good news. They were scattered, and they were spreading their story and God's story, and they began building this kingdom. As the church scattered and it spread, I think it's important to remember that they were moving into different cultures, into different customs. They were meeting people with new ideas. They were bringing good news into places with new and different languages. They were bringing their story to people who didn't look like them, talk like them, or eat like them. They were bringing their story, God's story, 
in our text. To, to who? The Samaritans. The church was bringing its story, its good news, its story of redemption and restoration and resurrection to the outcasts, the oppressed, and the marginalized. When the church is scattered, we take our story with us. We don't hold on to it for this one hour on a Sunday morning. We don't put it in our pocket and pull it out on Sunday morning to delight in it for an hour and then put it back until next week. We take it with us the other six days of the week. You take it with you the other six days of the week. Wherever we find ourselves scattered, wherever we play, wherever we relate, wherever we belong. What's the song we learn when we're little? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? Why? Because that's what the church is about. It's not just for this space. We're to be scattered and take that everywhere. Love God and love others where you are, because where you are matters. We're a scattered church, and where we are matters. The church is a persecuted church. The church is a scattered church. The church is a sent church. Remember how all this started back in Acts chapter 1. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Our story, God's story, this kingdom that we're building is for everybody. That's the vision. That's the mission. That's the point. Jesus gives it to us at the very beginning. And so this church begins to spread, and we find Philip in our text in Samaria. And it's important, and it's significant to be aware of where Philip is. Philip finds himself in Samaria. Samaria is the home of the religious outcasts. Samaritans were, were a religious people. They actually um, it, it would adhere to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. But they, they, they changed some things about it, and the Jewish people did not like that. They thought that they weren't pure. The Samaritans weren't pure. They weren't clean. And so the Jews, uh, not only did they not like their take on religion, they also just did not like the Samaritans, period. In fact, the Jews actually have songs that they had written about the Samaritans and how much they hated them, which I'm going to go out on a limb. If you are sitting around writing songs about people that you hate, you must really hate them because it takes some time and some effort and energy to write a song. And Philip finds himself in Samaria, and he's sharing his story. He's sharing God's story. He's beginning to build this kingdom thing, and the Samaritans begin to respond and there's something compelling about this resurrected Jesus, as I've said. Something compelling about the story, and the Samaritans respond. Now, what's interesting is Peter and John hear about this response in Jerusalem. They're back in Jerusalem. They hear about the Samaritans and how they're responding, and they go to see what's going on. Now, it's important to remember this. In the Gospels, and we'll look at, at Luke, because Luke is the author of Acts. In Luke chapter 9 we see Jesus walking through a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans don't really want anything to do with Jesus. They want him gone. And John tells Jesus, he, said, he asks Jesus, Jesus, why don't you just command fire from heaven and burn and destroy these Samaritans? That's what John says to Jesus in Luke chapter 9. Now in Acts, we see John, along with Peter, going to Samaria to see what's going on and how they're responding to Jesus. I think that's fascinating 
Because all of a sudden we see John realizing that these Samaritans aren't the enemies he thought they were, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. That this message is for everyone, not just the people in Jerusalem. It's for the people in Judea and Samaria. Now, a little hint at what's to come. In Acts chapter 10, Peter meets another guy. Peter meets a guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Gentile. Gentile, he's not Jewish. And for a Jew, that would be the ends of the earth. That's what they would have seen Gentiles as. And Peter brings his story, God's story, to this Gentile. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And if we can learn something from our sisters and brothers in the church in Acts, It's that we must expand our view of the love of God in the way that John might have. To think about what it means that this story is for everyone because it raises some challenging questions for us. Who are we maybe excluding from the message? Who are we ignoring? Who are we failing to truly understand when it comes to this message? The church is a church that's persecuted. The church is a church that is scattered. The church is a church that is sent. Why? Because we're called to build something. Something beyond where our plastic toolbox can take us. We're called to build a new kind of kingdom. And so we ask the question, are we building a kingdom of war or a kingdom of kindness? A kingdom of hate or a kingdom of love? A kingdom separated or a kingdom united? A kingdom of evil or a kingdom of love? A kingdom of the evil one or a kingdom of God? What are we building? What are you building? Much like my daughter and my friend working on the plumbing in my house, we're being invited to participate in the actual work. Regular people who are willing, people like Philip, people like Stephen, these weren't disciples, they were just regular people. It's important to remember that the same architect of this kingdom, God, is the same architect that designed us, that designed you. We were built for something greater than anything we could ever build on our own. God designs us and creates us to build. He created his church to be persecuted, scattered, and sent, and to persevere through that with the message of Jesus Christ and with the help of the Holy Spirit. We, we will build things that are greater than we could ever build on our own. My guess is that Philip, Peter, and John didn't think that 2,000 years later there would be this church family in this place, in this building right now, talking about them and how amazing they were at starting this church. But here we are. And we recognize that with help, with the Spirit, they were able to do amazing things. And the beginning of that church is a part of who we are. It's a part of our DNA. And with the Spirit, we can do amazing things. We can begin to build things that we could never build on our own. And so what are we building with our plastic hammers and our plastic screwdrivers? What are we building with our stories, with our community's story? Are we building things of this earth, things that rust and rot? Are we building things of other world? things of another kingdom, things of God, things of Christ, things of the Spirit. What are we building? What are you building? Let's pray. 
Father, may we come to the realization that you have equipped us. You've equipped us with a spirit, a spirit that enables us to build your kingdom in the ways that you would have us build it. Your spirit enables us to love when it's difficult, to persevere through persecution, to realize that when we are scattered, we have a story to share. Father, as we sing praise to your name this morning, we are reminded of the gift of your son reason that we're here, the reason that we sing, the reason that we live. We love you, and it's in his name. Amen.